Book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 this morning. We're in our final message in this little book. I trust that you've learned um, as we've gone through the book of Haggai and, and pray that there are things that we can um, take with us and uh, apply to our lives, not only individually, individually, but corporately as well as we've looked at Haggai. This morning, Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, this morning as your word goes forth, I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and lives. I don't want to stand up here and declare how great I am. Oh Lord, that we would see how great you are. May it be so evident as we look at your scripture. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder this morning how much thought you've given or maybe if you've ever given thought to the sovereignty of God. How much thought you've given to the fact that God is in control of all things at all times and that his plan will prevail no matter what. I think there are times that we say things like God is sovereign and maybe we don't understand what we're saying or we say that God is sovereign but we live opposite of the truth that we say. You know, a few weeks ago I shared how many pastors struggle with depression and how their wives constantly feel discouraged in their work. To be perfectly honest, I believe it's easy to develop discouragement, not just for pastors, but for Christians, because when we look around, it seems as though the enemy is winning. Even though we have all kinds of churches and resources available to us in, in this great country, it seems as though evil has only become more and more prevalent. In fact, studies have shown that whereas most Americans used to agree with the Christian moral standard, even though they may not have lived by it, that is no longer the case anymore. 
In fact, many people who profess to be Christians are not even living by any Christian moral standard, let alone those people that are in the world. It's no longer fashionable to call sin, sin. And it definitely is not popular to say that sin is wrong. And we see people who would much rather flaunt their sin than do anything about sin. And sin is like a badge of honor. Several denominations tolerate homosexuality, not only among their members, but even among the clergy. There are fewer and fewer churches that stand for absolute truth in morals or doctrine. We have also changed the gospel. It is no longer, the gospel is no longer how one can be saved from God's wrath, which is to come. But instead, it's how we can make use of God for our own personal fulfillment and our own personal gain. We can think about world missions and you can quickly become discouraged. Regardless of what people want us to believe, there's a worldwide threat of militant Islam. And if one is converted to Christianity in an Islamic country, they are often killed. Furthermore, there are thousands of people groups with no gospel witness whatsoever. None. They've never heard the gospel. They don't even know the name of Jesus. Even in our own country, let alone a developing nation, professing Christians mix cultural Christianity and folk religion with their Christian faith. And if we focus on all of these negatives, we can become so discouraged and we can throw our hands in the air and we say, where's God at? Zerubbabel finds himself in a very discouraging situation. He was the grandson of Jehoiakim, who was the last ruler of Judah before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and conquered the land. Most of the population had been carried off to Babylon, and even now there was only a small remnant of about 50,000 people that had returned. They were still under Persian rule and surrounded by hostile neighbors who were opposed to any sort of Jewish resettlement whatsoever. Now we know from our reading that the Jews who had returned seemed more concerned with their own comfort and their own prosperity than with the things of God. They did have a good response to Haggai's call to rebuild the temple, but, but many of the Jews were religious and their hearts were not right before God, according to verse 14 of chapter 2. The walls of Jerusalem were still torn down, the city was vulnerable, and somehow Zerubbabel was supposed to govern this people in their desperate situation. And so this is the picture. On December 28th, or December 18th, 520 B.C., the day that Haggai is given a message from God for the people. They were called not only to continue the work on the temple, but to do it from pure and holy hearts. And God promised to bless them from that day on. On that same day, God gives Haggai a message directly to Zerubbabel. Now remember what I had said before. The first and third messages were messages of rebuke. The second and fourth are messages of encouragement. To Zerubbabel and to all of God's servants who may be discouraged, God has a message for us in these 
verses. And as we see, God wins. And so this morning, first, let's see that God's cosmic plan will prevail. God's cosmic plan will prevail. The message of this text is that God's cosmic plan will prevail. In other words, there is absolutely nothing on the face of this earth or anywhere else that will stop God's plan from coming to fruition. This makes the application of this theological term that we have or this theological outcome that God's cosmic plan will prevail the, the application of that is this, that we must trust God's plan and his will as we carry it out because his plan will prevail no matter what. So here's the thing. This should be a cause for great comfort as we carry out God's plan and will knowing that it will never fail by God's standards because it will accomplish exactly what he wants it to accomplish. I believe there are five truths revealed to us here concerning God's plan. And we're going to look at those truths this morning. First, God's plan is certain. God's plan is certain. I don't know if you were able to pick up on it when, when I read through the passage of Scripture, but please notice the repetition that we see of the first person pronoun, I. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. In many translations, verse 22 starts with, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and the riders. I will take you, Zerubbabel. I will make you a signet ring. I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't know about you, but I get the impression that God knows exactly what he's going to do. This world is not just doing its own thing. Nor is this world out of control. So often we have it in our minds that the world has gone wild and God is up in heaven and he's just hoping to, to rein the world in because it's just going crazy. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because our sovereign God controls all of the events of human history and all of the events of the future and they're all for his purpose. That is why we read in the prophet Isaiah, the Lord of hosts has sworn as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Isaiah 14, 24. Or remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind your transgressors. Remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all that I purpose calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country I have spoken I will bring it to pass I have purposed and I will do it Isaiah 46 8 through 11 now let me be clear many Christians and even pastors will absolutely deny that God has sovereignty over man's will they will disguise it in creative language that even sounds good. And they will say things like this. Well, God will never violate man's free will. That way it sounds better. Well, God would never violate man's free will. Tell that to Jonah. Tell that to the Apostle Paul. There's even one who has a sermon in a book called 
the sovereignty of man, blasphemy. Do we make choices as humans? Yes. Scripture makes that clear, that we make choices for which we are held responsible. But it also affirms that over and over and above all of the choices that we make is the sovereign purpose of God. Now we know that God's ultimate purpose is his glory. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2 14. Now we have the choice of either cooperating with God's purpose. I can either cooperate with the purpose of God which is to bring him glory which will result in blessing, or we can go against the purpose. But guess what? We can't stop the purpose. You can either cooperate with it or go against it, but you will never stop it. It will happen. God will be glorified no matter what, whether we cooperate with it, which results in a blessing, or he is glorified in that blessing, or we go against it, resulting in judgment. And guess what? He has been glorified in our judgment. God's glorified either way. You see, God's plan is certain. It will happen. And we can't stop it. And neither can anyone else. Because that would be to declare that thing or us greater than God. But secondly, I want us to see this. I had to think of a C, so don't laugh. But God's plan is colossal. It's, it's huge. It's big. It's, we can't even fathom it. As we look at this passage of Scripture, we notice that there are no conditions when it comes to God's plan. God does not say, boy, I sure hope I can shake the heavens and the earth. But to be honest, it all depends on how men respond to me according to their own free will on whether I'm going to be able to shake the heavens and earth or not. Zerubbabel, you know I would like to take you, if, if you are willing, I'd like to take you and, and I'd like to make you into a signet ring if, if that's really what you desire, Zerubbabel. I'm just waiting and hoping that you'll say yes to my offer so I can do it, Zerubbabel. Is that what we read? We don't find that kind of language because God is absolute in what he declares. Because it will come to pass. He will do it in order to accomplish his plan. And his plan is vast. It is colossal. It's not dependent on you or I. He doesn't say, boy, I, I, I sure want to do something. But Pastor Josh, he just won't let me do it. Now Zerubbabel easily could have said, Lord, the number of Jews that have returned to the land is small. We have no king. We have no army. We have no weapons. We have no way to defend ourselves. And we're surrounded by all these hostile and powerful nations. Plus, we're subject to the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth, God. How in the world are we ever going to prevail? But listen, church, because this is what's so great about God's plan. His sovereign plan is not dependent upon the puny resources of his people. You know what they're dependent upon? Solely his power and his might. The pages of our Bible 
are packed with stories of how God delights to overthrow powerful kingdoms that dare think that they can exalt themselves over God's weak, vulnerable, chosen people. And God shows up and overthrows them. Just think about who God is. He brought the plagues on the mighty Egyptians and drowned their king and his army in the Red Sea. God delivered Sion, the king of Amorites, and Og, the king of Basham, into the hands of his lowly bunch of refugees in the wilderness. God tumbled the walls of Jericho, Jericho, and he used Joshua and Caleb, who trusted him, to conquer the fearsome giants in the land. He delivered the horde of Midian into the hands of Gideon with merely 300 men. He slew Goliath and put the Philistines to fleeing at the hands of a teenage shepherd named David. He delivered Hezekiah and Jerusalem from the siege of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, by sending his angel to kill 185,000 soldiers in one night. That is our God, who is sovereign over everything that his, he does. His plans will never falter and they will never fail over and over again he declares in his word as jeremiah put it ah lord god it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm nothing is too difficult for you that's our god now let me ask you what is the problem that you have that you think it is too big that God can't handle it? What is, what is your puny little problem that you think God can't handle it? What is it? Why is it that you think that you can't go share the gospel with your neighbor or your coworker or your friend or that person that works at, what is it again? What is your problem that you think God can't handle your problem? Does that mean that everything will always work out exactly like you want it to work out? No. But his plan is colossal and it's not dependent on you. It will always work out. Always, always, always for his glory because that's how god works thirdly god's plan is carried out by his choosing god's plan is carried out by his choosing it's important for us to understand that god's plan is carried out by his choosing and not someone else's choosing god makes it clear the reason that he will make Zerubbabel like his signet ring in verse 23, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What God says is just as important as what he does not say. Notice God does not say, Zerubbabel, I look down through the corridors of time and I'm going to make you a signet ring because I saw that in the future, you would choose me, so therefore I chose you. It's not what it says. Now I'm sure that there are many Christians who would try as hard as they could to force that meaning into the text, but it's not there. 
because it's not meant to be there. Because God's plan is carried out by his choosing. God accompanies his sovereign plan through his, or accomplishes his sovereign plan through his choices. I like what John Calvin says. For God does not here ascribe excellencies or merits to Zerubbabel, but he attributes this to his, meaning God's own election. Calvin goes on to say that if we ask why God had so much exalted Zerubbabel, he says this, it can be found in nothing else but in the goodness of God alone. Why does God make choices? Because he's good. And only for his goodness. What Calvin is saying is that God's election is not conditional on anything that he sees or foresees in fallen humanity, but only in his grace and his good pleasure. Now, people would read this and say, well, that Zerubbabel willingly cooperated with God's plan. You're right. I agree with that. However, the reason he cooperated with God's plan was that God chose him to do so. You see, God's sovereign eternal choice lies behind the temporal choices of men. But that does not mean that we are not responsible for the choices that we make so that at the same time, we are responsible for every choice that we make. Salvation works the exact same way. Yes, people must choose to trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Scripture is clear that God has commanded them to repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. However, when people make that choice, it does not originate from anything that's in them. It does not happen because they considered all the alternatives and they sat back and said well let me consider the alternatives of all my choices and with their natural brilliance they somehow made the most sense to trust in Jesus Christ because they're just naturally astute to these things that's not what happened you say well how do you know that pastor how do you know that that we don't sit back and weigh out all the decisions and go oh well this choice makes the most sense so therefore that's a choice I'm going to make because scripture is abundantly clear that the natural mind is blinded by Satan and by sin so it cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 you can't see it you're blinded to the gospel before you come to know Christ. You, you don't see it. That's what scripture says. To say otherwise is a denial of scripture. Scripture is clear that the natural mind cannot understand or accept the things of the spirit of God. Because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 You cannot look at it and spiritually discern what you're supposed to do. Scripture is clear that when anyone chooses to trust Christ, it is only because God has sovereignly chosen them and because Jesus willed to reveal the Father to them. Luke chapter 10, verse 22. Jesus plainly says that you can only understand the Father has sent me because he has willed you to understand it in the first place. Finally, Scripture is clear that salvation is of the Lord. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. So what part of man's salvation is dependent upon man? None. I love what Jonathan Edwards said. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. In our verses for today, the Lord says... He has chosen Zerubbabel. 
to be like a signet ring. What does that mean? Does that mean that God is literally going to make him into a ring? Well, no. The signet ring was the instrument that king used to seal all official documents. This is how you knew the document was from the king. It was a symbol of honor and authority. In 1 Kings 21, when the wicked queen Jezebel confiscated Naboth's vineyard for her weak-willed husband, King Ahab, she wrote letters in his name and sealed them with his seal so that when the recipients of the letters got them, they knew that the letters came from the king and that he stood behind the message and it had to be obeyed. So needless to say, the signet ring was a precious object. It was handled with great care. It was usually worn on a person so that it could not be stolen. So when God says to Zerubbabel that he has chosen him and is going to make him like a signet ring, that's a pretty big deal. Zerubbabel had a wicked grandfather, Jehoiakim. This is what he said of him. Even though he were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off and I will give you over in the hands of those who are seeking your life. Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-four. How great is it that now God graciously reverses the judgment and restores the Davidic line through Zerubbabel. Although Zerubbabel... Himself did not reign on the Jewish throne. He's included in both of the genealogies of Jesus Christ, the son of David, Matthew 1, 12, Luke 3, 27. Now, don't you think that God's promise of his choice of Zerubbabel as his signet ring would have brought great comfort and encouragement to this discouraged man in these difficult times? Yeah. Oh, how we should be encouraged by the sovereignty of God. Oh, how we should understand that God's plan will not fail. God's plan will not falter. The sovereignty of God should keep us from backing down, from giving up, from giving in, from throwing in the towel, from stepping back, from being discouraged. Why? Because we know that God's plan will Prevail. Here's the thing. The doctrine of God's sovereign election humbles the flesh and gives us no reason at all to ever boast. I fail to understand why Christians stumble over and invent ways to get around it. We have this theological truth repeatedly in Scripture to comfort and encourage us. Think about God's message to Zerubbabel. Even, the, even though the most powerful kingdoms on earth, they would shake and fall. He need not fear because he is God's chosen one. Because God, the God of the universe says, Zerubbabel, I have chosen you as precious in God's sight as a signet ring was to a king. What a great comfort from our great God. Christian, I have said it before. I will say it again. Stop walking around like you are some sort of defeated person and like your God is some tiny, puny little God who doesn't sovereignly rule over the universe. God wins. We're on the winning team. 
What a great comfort in knowing that God has said it and it will happen. And if he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. What a great comfort to know that God's plan will go forth no matter what. God's message to his church and to individual believers in frightening times when the world or personal events cause us to quake with fear and we're looking around we're like, what is going to happen? What is going to take place? As we watch the news and we see some psycho going into mosque and shooting up people and as Christians are being killed in other parts of the world God's message is this fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom Luke 12 32 oh church the doctrine of God's choosing us should comfort and encourage strengthen us when we face such hard times Therefore, God has a cosmic plan. It will prevail. It is certain. It is colossal. It's carried out by his choosing. Now let's see that God's plan has Jesus Christ as its center. Now what we often have in the Old Testament is what we call types. Meaning that someone is a type of Christ. This is how it is with Zerubbabel. He is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin saw this over 450 years ago. Jesus Christ is at the center of all scripture and he is the center and final goal of what God is doing in all of human history. All of the Old Testament is a pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. Some would say that that is Jesus Christ concealed in the Old Testament. You didn't, you didn't fully see Christ. And so God's promise to Abraham and to David find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All of the New Testament centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Some would say Jesus Christ revealed. So we have a revealing of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So Luke has a record of Jesus. He's on the road to Emmaus and it says of him beginning with Moses and with all the prophets he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures Luke 24 27 this is what Richard Wolf writes Zerubbabel is a type of Christ the true servant of God and God's signet ring all that has validity in God's eyes bearing the seal the stamp of his approval come to us through Jesus Christ Zerubbabel led Israel out of the Babylonian exile and Christ delivered them from the bondage of sin Zerubbabel built the temple of God and Christ is building the spiritual temple the church Christ is the signet ring in through whom all divine purposes are sealed after the final shaking of the nations we shall receive a kingdom that cannot be moved and all nations shall walk in the light of God and he shall be all in all so why is it important to understand that Zerubbabel is a type of Christ well because these promises were not fulfilled in Zerubbabel's time Zerubbabel would never rule on a throne in Israel. He would not live to see the thrones of kingdoms, and he would never see his name in the gene genealogy of the Messiah. Which brings it us to the last thing concerning God's cosmic plan, and that's this. God's timed plan compared to ours is contrasting. If you remember in verse 6, we saw that the Lord says, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth 
and the sea and the dry land. Haggai 2, 21 and 22. Obviously, it refers to the same shaking, which God said would take place in a little while. And I have said before, often in prophecy, there's a short-term fulfillment in prophecy, and there's a long-term fulfillment. This is the same for these verses. Yes, there may have been some partial fulfillment of the shaking of the nations when Persia and Greece and Rome were overthrown, but the final fulfillment is still the future in our day. Clearly, God's idea of a little while does not coincide with our idea of a little while. God's timing is not the same as our timing. It's contrasting to ours. In fact, we have, right, we have contrasting times even amongst ourselves. For example, my idea of a little while might not be your idea of a little while. I know people that a little while, that means like hours. Okay? Like, like they, I'll be over in a little while. Four hours later, you're still waiting for them to show up. It's like, what in the world, right? That, that's, that's the way it is, even amongst ourselves. It's the same way with God, except for his idea is drastically different than our idea because God is not concerned with time. He's not confined by time. He's not like up there, okay, well, let's see. Uh, I got five minutes and that, my time's up. That's not the way it works with God. He operates outside of time. And it is for this reason why liberal scholars will not only deny the second coming of Christ, but some will deny that Christ ever came at all. Peter wrote about these types of people when he said this. He said, mockers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter goes on to write, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. If you remember our study in Hebrews, we looked at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, which in regards to the men of faith from the past, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Listen, the issue is faith. You see, we must receive by faith in God's word the promise of Christ's return. Why do we believe? Why do Christians, why are they some nutty people that believe this dude that died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and they, first of all, they're crazy because they believe he resurrected from the dead, and now they believe he's coming back. Why do we believe such a crazy story, Faith? Amen. Faith. He's coming back for all of us who believe. And we read in Scripture all the warnings of His coming judgment to those who mock Him. And that leads to the inevitable application of our text. If all this is true, then we must trust God's plan and His will as we carry it out. 
Look at verse 23. God calls Zerubbabel his servant. O Zerubbabel, my servant. Exact same title that he used of David in Ezekiel 34, 23. Ezekiel 37, 24. The exact same title used repeatedly of the Messiah in Isaiah 40 through 55. So again, as we've already seen, Zerubbabel is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, we would do well to remember that all who believe in Christ are God's servants. Just as he chose Zerubbabel to serve a unique role in his sovereign plan, so he has chosen you. If you know Christ, he's chosen you to serve him. And this should be cause for great comfort in your life and cause for great humility as well to stop and think. Stop and think, oh Christian. The Lord, the God of this universe, chose you. Do you get that? He chose you. And that's not so you can arrogantly go, well, look at me. God chose me. It had nothing to do with you. That's the beauty of it. And by his grace, he says, that one right there. I don't fathom or understand. God, why would you choose me to carry out your plan? It makes no sense, but that's what he's done. The book of Haggai ends with this final triumphant note, but it can only be a source of encouragement to us if we trust in God's word. If Zerubbabel had heard this word through Haggai and hoped that it would be fulfilled in his lifetime, he would have died as a very disappointed man. You see, he had to take God at his word. He had to trust in God's timing. The Lord would fulfill all of these promises in his perfect way. That is the hard part, is it not, when it comes to God's plan? Because it's on God's timing, not ours. And that's the hard, hardest thing. Things don't happen in our time or when we want them to happen, but they happen in God's perfect time. And not only that, but to understand also things may not happen how we want them to happen either, but they will happen how God wants them to happen. Zerubbabel trusted in God's plan. And guess what he did? He just got on with the task of governing God's people, which God called him to do. We trust God's plan, and we do what he's called us to do. Trusting that God will work it all out. That's what we do. We say, okay, God, I trust in your plan. I trust in what you say in your word. Therefore, I'm going to do it. Trusting that you're going to take care of everything else. Please hear me, church, as we understand that this final message of Haggai teaches us that frightening world circumstances and powerful enemies of the gospel and personal discouragements are not good reasons for neglecting to do what God has called us to do. They're not. 
We can't, we can't sit back and go, oh, I'm just in a bad circumstance. Therefore, I can't be obedient to God. You can't blame your circumstances for refusing to be obedient. You can't sit around and say to God, yeah, God, I know that's what you want me to do, but I'm scared, God. Or, or God, I know that's what you want me to do, but there's enemies of the gospel that are all around me. Or, or God, I know what you want me to do, but I'm just really feeling discouraged right now, so, so I'm just not going to be obedient. It's never an option. Remember God's word to the leaders and the people in the second message. Be strong and work. It's his message to us now. Be strong and work. Church, I call on you. Be strong and work. Not for your glory, but for God's glory. We have the great privilege of participating in God's plan for the ages. You and I have the privilege. We are part of the plan that brings God eternal glory through Jesus Christ who purchased us for God with his blood from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. Revelation 5.9. Be strong and work. If we are to serve him as we should, we have to trust his promises about what he's going to do in the future. We have to trust that people will be saved because he said they would be saved. We have to trust that our God wins because he said he will win because he's already planned it out and it will come about. God has not resigned. God is not up in heaven wringing his hands. God isn't wondering what in the world he's going to do with this world. That's not who God is. But God from eternity past on into eternity future reigns and will reign for ever be strong and work because it's not dependent on you and your power but his and you say but pastor we're weak praise God pastor we're we're a small church how are we going to do this praise God pastor I don't know praise God He likes to take the small, feeble, weak and do what only he can do. In the end, we don't know what happened to Zerubbabel. We don't know. Some scholars have assumed that both Haggai and Zechariah encouraged Zerubbabel to look forward to a time when Judea would be free from foreign domination and be governed by a future descendant of the house of David. They also assume that the promise found here in our text this morning led Zerubbabel to being crowned and King Darius quickly crushed it. However, I don't believe that that's likely. And though there are speculations and legends on what happened after this, the Bible is completely silent. We don't have anything in the scripture. Haggai closes, leaving Zerubbabel with just these hopeful promises. That's it. That's the end. And then we never hear about him again until the New Testament. When he appears in the genealogies of Jesus Christ. This literally closes and we don't hear about him again. And I like to imagine some of the unbelievers of Zerubbabel's day. Mocking and saying things like, Zerubbabel, you're hoping in Nothing. What good's all that hope going to get you when you die? We hear some of that language today. 
perhaps mocking us because of our faith. But here's the thing, our faith, our hope in Christ extends beyond this life and on into eternity. In fact, Scripture tells us if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people to be most pitied. If your hope's in this life only, then Paul says, I pity you. You see, as believers, we trust in the promises of God. As believers, we look forward to eternity because we have an understanding and know that this life is not all that there is. There's more than just this life. We have aches and pains and hurts and heartaches, but, oh, Christian, there is more than just this life. In fact, if this life is all we have, and if God's promises about the resurrection and the judgment and eternal life are not true, then like Paul says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this is all there is, let's just party it up. Because it doesn't matter. Praise be to God that there is more to life than the here and now. Praise be to God that we have the hope of eternity. We know that in the end, God wins. And that's the thing, church. If God's word is true, I believe it is, and I'm guessing you do as well, if you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, that you believe that what we read in the scripture is true. If it is true, if Christ is raised from the dead... I believe he's raised from the dead. I'm assuming you believe he's raised from the dead because that's what scripture teaches us. Then let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Your labor is not in vain. So I say to you, in the end, God wins. I say it's time to get to work. It's time to get busy for the Lord, knowing that we cannot fail. You cannot fail when you're doing the Lord's work. You will accomplish exactly what he wants you to accomplish. That is the beauty of it. He says, do this, you do it, and you accomplish exactly what he wants you to accomplish. You may fail by your standards, or you may fail by the world's standards, but you do not fail by God's standards. The time for sitting in our pew and hoping that things will happen are over. The time for just kind of coming to church and sitting there going, well, I sure hope something eventually happens to our church. I sure hope that sometime we grow. I sure hope that sometime we expand. I sure hope that sometime this takes place. Hoping things will happen will never make it happen. It's time for action. It's time for us to get out of our pew and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's time for us to get serious and advance the kingdom of God knowing that that is exactly what he's proclaimed you and I to do so we're going to be obedient because we know that his plan will not fail it's time to know and understand that his plan never ever 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 fails so let's get busy because we trust in God's plan And we do God's will. All for God's 
glory. Is that what you're doing? Oh, church, let's be busy doing the Lord's business. Here in just a minute, we're going to sing a song. I'll give you an opportunity to respond to this message. I don't know how the Lord may have spoken to you. Maybe you need to pray or maybe you'd want to pray with me or you can pray in your pew. You don't need to come and pray with me. Maybe you need to pray and say, Lord, I need to get busy. Oh, Lord, may I lead our church to be corporately busy doing your business and following your will because I understand and I want us to understand that your plan will never fail. Let's just do your business knowing that your plan will be accomplished. Maybe you need to pray that you, maybe you just kind of like hear. It's what you do. And you need to be busy doing the Lord's work. Or maybe this morning for the first time, Jesus Christ makes sense. And you need to receive Christ as your Savior. I want to encourage you in that direction as well. Be standing down there if you need prayer or whatever you need. Be standing down there ready to receive you. If you want to make those decisions in your pew and talk to me later, you're more than welcome to do that as well. Let's close with prayer.